0: Our scripture reading for today is uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Yeah, I didn't put my name up there. I figured everybody else has pretty much gotten a chance. I'm going to read one of the scriptures before today, too. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So far, the reading from God's Word. Today's message is simply titled, When Life Goes Bad. I don't know, is life ever going bad for any of you? You're kind of cruising down the road and all of a sudden you just kind of swerve off into the ditch temporarily. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Well, you can see a map on the next screen, but if you travel 40 miles north of Ephesus, you come to a natural harbor, which was the home of the city of Smyrna. Now, I'm just going to say a couple of things about Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, the, the Greek word, gets translated into myrrh. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that, but you probably know a few connections in the life of Jesus about myrrh. When the three, I was going to say three wise guys, the three wise men came, uh, they brought, what, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then when the ladies were going to go to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, they would have done it with, amongst other things, Myrrh. So it's a sweet-smelling uh, ointment. Uh, but this is the city of Smyrna. Now, today it's called Izmir. And if you look on a, a map of modern-day Turkey, uh, you see it's a kind of a leading city. Uh, and because of its location, because of its beauty on the harbor, uh, Smyrna, even back in the days of uh, the apostles, it was known as the Ornament of Asia. And over time... It appears that there were a certain number of Jews that left the promised land, uh, migrated to Smyrna, and they became part of the business scene of that city of Smyrna. Uh, They bought and sold, and uh, they sent goods that were bound bound to Rome in the west and sending them back to Persia in the east. Uh, But in the year 26 AD, there was a contest that was held. And it was held to determine which city would win the right Uh, to build a temple for the worship of Julius Caesar. The guy that they elevated to, well, not just sainthood, but elevated him to the point of being God. And guess who won? It was Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna won, took great pride then as a result uh, because of their loyalty to Rome and to Caesar. Now, this thing didn't get built for some time, but this was a place where people worshipped something other than God. And so, because of this prevailing what we call paganism and uh, the citywide emperor worship, Christians now suddenly uh, found themselves under a lot of unrelenting pressure. And part of this pressure was that once a year, everybody had to kind of gather together and had to publicly declare I don't know if you had to raise your right hand or not, but they had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, uh, no faithful Christ follower would ever do that. I mean, because we know that it's Jesus is Lord. And so as a result, the believers in Jesus found themselves rather unpopular in their community. uh, And they were continually criticized. And so to live in Smyrna uh, meant that you were in the hotbed of Caesar worship and pagan sacrifice. And as a result, well, you had all kinds of disadvantages. Uh, there. Uh, now, we should note that Smyrna is only one out of two of the seven churches that uh, our Lord has. No words of rebuke. Uh, the other one is Philadelphia. We'll get to that one. And some of you are say, well, Philadelphia makes sense. The Greek is what? Philodelphos, the city of brotherly love. It must have been a pretty great place. But the silence of the Lord in the midst of the suffering here... Uh, You know, it's striking when you consider the really harsh words. And next week, Pergamum, there's some really harsh words there. It's not because of any false sympathy that our Lord has from rebuking them. But there's a a deeper reality here because he's talking to a bunch of people who are literally suffering uh, for their faith. What's happening is their suffering actually made their faith stronger. It had stripped them of like everything except Jesus Himself. So here is a church that is in deep weeds. This is a church that's in trouble. Uh, their enemies clearly have an, have an upper hand. Uh, and seeing the beleaguered um, people at Smyrna, Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. Now this letter is going to tell us something not only about the church in Smyrna, but I want to suggest it's going to talk about the church called Restore. And it's even much more about what it says about the Lord that you and I worship. So today, through just these few little verses, uh, we're going to find much to encourage our own struggles, whatever they may be. We are still a fledgling organization. There's still a certain amount of struggles we go through, as do most churches that are faithful to the gospel. We have the same thing that happens in our own personal lives. So here's the very first thing I want you to know about this, and that's that Jesus knows your trouble. I don't know if any of you are in trouble today or not, if you got troubles today. Well, Jesus knows them, and that word afflictions, it says uh, he knows your afflictions or tribulations in verse 8, doesn't describe ordinary troubles of life. It was often used as a word to describe a man who was literally being crushed by a massive boulder, So that changes that word a little bit. So when the sky falls in, when it seems like all hope is gone in your life, when darkness kind of surrounds you and when the enemy seems to be kind of closing in, Jesus says, I understand. I know your afflictions. I know your distress. I know your tribulation. And he would say that to you and to me, to this place, to anybody who is a Christ follower. Now, when I read that, I think of suffering believers today. Uh, some of you know I've been involved with Christ for India for many years. In fact, I'm serving again as vice president of the board. And we continually get reports of what's going on, particularly in, in North uh, East India, where the Hindus and the Muslims are chasing believers out of their churches into the forest, burning down their churches, destroying their homes. That's happening. Having had some past experience in Nigeria, I still keep up with a couple of people there. And I read about these stories where in Nigeria, believers and villages are attacked and um, hacked to death, literally, by fanatical Muslims. And this happens every day, and it has been really since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, guess what? Somebody didn't like sacrifices, what was going on. Somebody rose up against and killed someone, his own brother. Who is offering a valid sacrifice to his Lord? See, God knows your trouble. Here's the second thing you need to know is that he also knows your poverty. In verse 9, he says, I know your poverty. And that word can mean beggary or destitution. I know how you guys are begging. You guys are literally destitute. And then he adds, But you're rich. Isn't that interesting? Well, that is rich. <laughs> That's what I probably says. Now, these words are literal. They're, they're not metaphorical here. Christians in Smyrna were evidently now, after oppression, because they would not worship Julius Caesar, had been forced to the lower rungs in the economic ladder. If they had once been very wealthy, where they could ship goods to Rome and to Persia, those days were long gone. Uh, no doubt many had lost their jobs because they wouldn't stand up and say, Hail Caesar or Caesar is Lord. Um, So to these poverty-stricken Christ followers, Jesus said, but you're rich. You're rich. Now, somebody could probably read this and say, is Jesus making fun of these people? Is Jesus mocking them? Well, I think it kind of depends on how we value time versus eternity. See, if this life is all that matters then these words of Jesus are nothing more than what I'd call pious piffle, pious nonsense. I mean, what good is it to say to somebody who you're rich when you know they're starving on the streets? But we need to remember a couple of things. And I think I have these on the screen uh, that, first of all, no man who knows Jesus is ever truly poor. And the second thing is maybe I don't have them on the screen, but no man without Jesus, no man without Jesus is ever truly rich. See, it's kind of foolish for us to think that the little bit we kind of amass in this life matters in eternity. I mean, you can't take it with you. I mean, we've all heard that before. I mean, with the God who makes, who's made all the stars and knows the names of all the stars, uh, is, he, is he impressed by your house or your cars or the clothes you wear or the little toys that you kind of gather together? Uh, See, he knows your poverty. He knows your riches. Uh, He sees your faith lived out in hard times. Uh, He knows the prayers you pray as tears are running down your face. He hears your desperate cries for help, whatever that may be. And yet, oddly enough, these hated Christians in Smyrna were the richest people in town. Now, years ago... I heard, heard it expressed this way. Maybe you've heard this, this statement before, but it goes this way. You'll never know if Jesus is all you need unless Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then you will discover that Jesus is all you need. I've used that in sermons, I think, for any number of years. Now, most of us have a hard time kind of figuring that out. But because the Christians at Smyrna were so poor, they learned that Jesus was literally all they needed. That's why Jesus says, but you're rich. You're rich. In other words, no man is poor who has learned to depend on Christ alone. Now, here's the third thing he wants to teach us here. That he knows your enemies. Does restore have enemies? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Won't get into it this week. Maybe we will next week. It's not like we're just kind of just coming in here and it's all hunky dory and all happy clappy and all that because I have a sneaking feeling there are people who don't particularly care to have us here. That there are people who may stand against what it is that we believe. Subtle sometimes, a little bit overt. I can tell you from my experience as a pastor, been there, done that, knowing that people were praying against. Always was happening in churches, standing and praying outside of buildings where we were doing uh, pastors' conferences in foreign countries. It's there, bringing demon-possessed people in the midst of Bible studies because they want to disrupt the entire time. It says, I know your enemies. I know your enemies. I know the slander. That's blasphemia. In uh, Greek, and you've got that word blaspheme. Of those who say they are Jews and are not, they are a what? They are a synagogue. Synagogus It's a gathering place where Satan lives. Now, we know that the one Satan goes back and forth. back to the, world. He can, the devil cannot be everywhere at the same time. That's only God. It's only him. But the demons? All over the place said, know your enemies uh, in the Nebraska when growing up in Nebraska, being a Cornhusker fan. I loved getting the Lincoln Journal on a Saturday morning during football season. And there was a section that was called know the foe. <laughs> so when Nebraska was playing, let's say, for example, Oklahoma, you had to read the know the foe. You had to know who your enemy was that day. We need to know the foe. So this. This kind of description applies to these Jews here in Smyrna who actually there were other Jews who actually had joined forces with the other pagans to accuse Christians of treason against Rome. I have a feeling that will probably come a day. Maybe it's already here that even we as Christians will be accused of treason because we don't fall down and worship the elected official of whatever your choice is. See, in taking up sides against the church of Jesus, uh, they were, in effect, taking sides against Jesus himself. Now, because Christians did not worship idols, but instead worshiped an invisible God, guess what? They were considered to be atheists. Well, you must not be a believer then, because we can't see your God. We can see our God. There he is. he got the big statue of him. Their opponents also heard rumors about the people in Smyrna that they were actually eating and drinking the body and blood of the Lord, and as a result were called cannibals, atheistic cannibals. See, because Christians were despised, marginalized, they kind of seemed like a, a virus and, and that needed to be removed from Smyrna. And, and see, these so-called Jews... That didn't want to be a part of the Christian Jews, attack them. So they were not, as Paul as John says here, they weren't really Jews at all. They were just Jews in name only. I suppose we could do that sometime today. And we don't do name calling, but, well, they were Lutherans in name only. They were Baptists in name only. <laughs> they, they weren't really Baptists. They weren't really, they weren't really Episcopate. They weren't really Catholics. They just kind of looked like it. They dressed like it. But they did not worship this true God. Now, all of this, when I read through this, it strikes me. We we need to remind ourselves that religion, and I I hope you understand this, religion remains the greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel today. That's an interesting statement. religion. I'll say it again. Religion remains the greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel. See, religion blinds man and woman to the need of God because it makes him or her think that they can contribute somehow to their own salvation. If you do such and such, God will be happy with you. If you don't do such and such, God's going to dangle you over the fires of hell. See, millions of people today in our world have a religion that's based on superstition. Uh, They put their trust in some outward factor as their hope for heaven. And some people will someday be sadly disappointed. Others trust, and I know people like this, they trust in what I'd call inherited religion. You know, daddy was an elder. Oh, my dad was a pastor. Uh, Mama was a Sunday school teacher. Well, good for them. (laughs) That's not your ticket into heaven. Uh, They act as if salvation is something you inherit, like the color of your eyes or your your skin. But it just doesn't work that way. Nobody else can believe for you. Uh, You have to believe for yourself. Particularly if you desire to be with the Lord in heaven someday. So never be surprised when religious people hate you. And uh, think about it this way. After all, they hated Jesus. In like fact, they hated him enough to kill him. And there are people in the world today who know because you know Jesus, they'll hate you and they'll kill you in the same way. That's why here's our fourth point here Jesus says, Do not fear. Well, you hear about all of this stuff and you go, well, I am going to shake it in my boots a little bit. But here's verse verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you the devil, Diabolos, a slanderer is that word, will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, we'll get to 10 days here a little bit to talk about exactly what that means. But there are at least three things I think we can learn from this verse. Uh, one of these things is simply this. Our Lord has a perfect knowledge of all that's about to happen. Surprises actually do not happen. Uh, there's never been a day in heaven where God goes, Whoa, I never saw that one before. man, where'd that come from? No, He knows everything. Uh, the other thing is the Lord sometimes allows the devil to attack us severely. I don't know if you've ever felt like you were under demonic oppression. Or you feel like Satan is attacking you. It happens. And the third thing is our sufferings are limited by the Lord. Now, we may suffer in this world for being a Christ follower, but the Lord knows where the limits are for you. He's got those limits set. See, Jesus tells this church here at Smyrna that the severe persecution will last for ten days. Now, you can take this, and Bible commentators is going to go back and forth. You can either take this... uh, Figuratively, 10 days meaning like for a period of time. Or it could be indefinite. It could be literal. Some people think, well, you know, 10 days, that doesn't sound so bad. I think I could suck it up and deal with that. But, but see how you feel after you've been fired because of your faith. You know, when you've been beaten or when your house is robbed or your wife is abused or your kids are attacked at school. I mean... Would 10 days seem a small period of time to suffer then? See, some of you perhaps have been kind of in the furnace of affliction for longer than 10 days at different times in your life. There's been a lot of suffering over a period of time. Uh, Well, but it seems small then. Uh, For some people, they've suffered in life more than 10 days. Maybe it's been 10 years. For some, just a lifetime And. You know, even after all of these years of ministry for myself, I freely confess I can't explain why some people seem to suffer more than other people. You know people like that. I know people like that. I don't profess to know why it is. Now, while I, while I agree with scripture where, where, where it says, you know, into each life a little rain must fall, uh, some folks seem to be living in a perpetual monsoon. But after kind of thinking about this for a long time, I've kind of concluded that our speculations about what that means are just that. They're just speculations. They don't really help us much. But we need to rest our soul on some place. And one place I rest my soul when I don't understand things is in 1 Corinthians 10:13, where it talks about how we cannot be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear that God always gives us strength to deal with whatever problem comes in our life. See, the God who made each and every one of you, all the way from Anthony over to Nancy, He knows your limits. Jeff, He knows your limits. Ed, He knows your limits. And sometimes we get sorely tried over a period of time, Bo, with with government agencies that make it difficult to get husband and wife together. He knows what we can put up with. Some of us can handle pain better than other people. Um, But he is never, ever going to give us any more than you and I can bear. So just think of it this way. If Jesus says, you will suffer ten days, nothing can make it eleven. It won't end early, but it won't last any longer. So the time limit on trials has always been set by the Lord. You know, you might say, "How long, oh Lord, is this going to happen?" Now, he, he may say, he may give you an idea and say, "Don't worry about it, Jeff. I got this." He may may be silent. All we know is that God has a limit in there somewhere. That's why He says to these people who are suffering, "Fear not." I don't know if you heard that acronym: Fear, F E A R. Fear, fear, uh, 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 fear. And I've actually forgot. Um, they will come back to me. Oh, It's false evidence appearing real. That's what it is. False evidence appearing real. A little brain cramp there. Uh, he knows what he's doing. He's doing it. He's going to accomplish his purpose. Now, here's the fifth thing he wants to remind us. Be faithful. Be faithful. Verses 10 and 11. Even to the point of death, I'll give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death and some of you are looking at it and go what? <laughs> I'm dying twice? well uh, let me get, put this into context I mean, you'd have to go over to, to Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 and in Revelation 20 verse 14 it says and death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire so for the Christian that second death in the lake of fire does not exist. Why? Because you'll be in heaven. You remember the rich man in Lazarus? Who was down in the lake of fire? Who is up in heaven? See, this is this is one important fact we must not miss. I mean, Jesus never promises to remove trials in our life. Uh, he never said to the church at Smyrna, just believe in me and everything will be better. Um <laughs> I hate to put it this way, but you know Jesus was not a prosperity gospel preacher. And I'm not going to pick on the prosperity gospel, but that heresy's infected the church worldwide and created a generation of Christians who are materialistic and worldly and spiritually anemic. That's why that's because they have no theology of suffering. They're not ready when suffering comes. See, because if you actually believe you can have your best life now, well, oh, man, when struggles come around, they don't know what to do with that kind of nonsense. See, Jesus has never, never said, and I, I've read enough of the Bible, read it through many times, He's never says, believe in me and I'll give you an easy life. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Now, so, no doubt, many believers living in Smyrna have uh, paid the ultimate price by losing their life. Uh, having followed Jesus, they just simply followed him in depth. death. So it's against this background we see the importance of Christ's title for himself here in verse 8. He says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who came to, uh, who died and came to life again. Now, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, is recorded in Romans, or not Romans, but in Revelation chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet. This is John revealing what he sees in heaven. When I saw the Lord, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and last and the living one. I died and behold him alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. In other words, what we have happening here is Jesus is the Lord of extremes. He was there at the beginning, in the beginning. God created the heavens and earth. Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of this age. Uh, because he conquered death, death can't conquer us. Some of you may uh, know the name Max Lucado. He's written a lot of really great books. I've read a number of his books over the years. Is a great gospel preacher who passed away a few years ago. In uh, one of the articles that he, he wrote towards the end of his life when he was suffering, Uh, He said, in heaven, we're going to remember the day we died with the same fondness we remember graduation days. Remember how happy you were when you got out of high school or grade school or college or finished your doctorate or whatever? (sighs) I'm done. Yeah, death is just graduation day. Uh, You know, many Christians today, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about another. How many of you ever heard of Polycarp? Some of you think that that's Greek for many fish but it's not. Polycarp. Let me tell you a little bit about poly- Polycarp. Uh, early believers knew all about him because he was one of the first really well-known martyrs of the Christian faith. In his youth, he was actually discipled by the Apostle John, who wrote Revelation in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the Gospel of John. And uh, he was actually uh, ordained... By John to be the bishop of the church at Smyrna. Now, during a wave of persecution in A.D. about 155, when he was in his uh, late 80s, uh, a mob demanded his death for preaching Jesus. And Roman officials actually tried to save his life by offering him repeated chances to deny his faith in Christ. And every time they offered that, he refused. When given one last chance to save his life, this is what he said For eighty six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Now the soldiers then approached him and they were going to tie him to the stake so they could burn him up, and Polycarp is recorded to have said, Leave me as I am, he who grants me the grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain. Standing by the pyre, unmoved, without the security you desire from nails. And as the flames consumed him, and history says the flames didn't consume him. He was burning, but he didn't appear to be burning up. Actually, uh, they came and stabbed him to death. But as that happened, he prayed this prayer. I thank you, O Lord, that you have deemed me worthy this day and this hour to take up the cross of Christ with many witnesses. Now, when I first read about and heard about polycarp and heard this whole story, I thought to myself, where do you get people like this? Where do you find a man like that? And yet, I do know that God has polycarps all over this world. Uh, There are brave men and brave women today who will not bow the knee to Baal or Caesar or Islam or Muhammad or any other false god. They'd rather die than surrender what Jesus has given them. Uh, one pastor was told that he was um, to be killed, and this was in, if, if you get, uh, Voice of the Martyrs magazine. Interesting stories. but it was recorded not long ago. One pastor um, was told that he would be killed if he did not reject the gospel. His reply is, you can't threaten me with heaven. Wow. Powerful faith. Well, few of us probably are not going to be called upon to do what Polycarp did. Uh, for most of us all the sufferings we're going to endure are going to be a whole lot less dramatic, uh, pressures are going to be a whole lot more subtle. Temptation is probably harder to spot. But the call from Jesus remains the same, and that is to be uh, to fear not. Uh, be faithful. After all, you know, heaven is waiting for us. Uh, death may come, but it can't take away what Jesus has promised us. You know, we can be rich today and poor tomorrow. We can have a job one day and lose our job the next day. We can be healthy as a horse for a long time. And then suddenly cancer comes into our life. We can have a happy family. And then suddenly it seems like our family's all up for grabs. And our friends say they love us. And then they walk away. We never hear from them again. But in the midst of all of that, to those who stand in the midst of trials, what this little story tells us is the best is yet to come. You're going to receive a crown of life someday That's a pretty cool deal You get to reign with Jesus forever And you don't have to worry about that second death In hell Because that cannot reach God's children So what's the point of this little story Of Smyrna scripture I think it's just to be encouraged Be encouraged uh, Buckle up your chin strap It's going to be a rough ride between here And when God calls you home That's, that's life Don't run from the troubles of life. I think it's also a good thing to remind us that we're all a whole lot richer than we think we are. And heaven is just around the corner.